Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I am Jasper at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. This week we are joined by uh, a wonderful panel, including... Um, hi, I'm Chris Terry. I'm um, at CJ Terry on Twitter. Hi, uh, I'm Lines. Uh, that is late on Twitter. Hi, I'm Morgan. I'm one of the stable of useless social review hacks. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, the Social Review Podcast is going to be talking about the upcoming winter general election books, How Could We Not? Uh, but doing so in a way which is hopefully not time limited and talking about things which, which can be applicable um at other points in time as well so this week we're talking about data and election polling and yeah chris would you actually everyone really uh would you just be able to explain a little bit more about what it is that you guys do uh for the for the uninitiated i am a phd student at the university of manchester where i am researching uh, marginal uh, um, voters in marginal seats um which uh, I'm, it's still at an early stage. Um, I'm still basically working out what a marginal seat even is. Um, but we do have kind of interesting evidence that pre-exists that says that turnout is low in marginal seats. That says that, um, for example, more money in terms of local government grants is spent on marginal seats. And basically I'm trying to um, look into that area further and um, kind of explore the way in which the electoral system creates inequalities um, depending on where you live. I am also used to work for the Electoral Reform Society for many years and um, I was also a pollster so hopefully I'll have some um, helpful knowledge for this area. But in my non-social review life, if there is such a thing, I actually work for a unnamed Labour MP in an unnamed marginal seat so I am very curious to see how uh, to see how polls are how polls are looking because I have rather a lot of uh, emotional investment <laughs> and financial investment in uh, in how marginal seats are going to go. So I'm really interested to hear the conversation today. In my real life, I do a PhD in something to do with computers. Probably, I guess I am a politics kind of nerd is the wrong word, but I have an active Twitter account for my sins. Uh, so I feel like I'm engaged with polling possibly more than I should be. I'm not actually sure if it matters. So I'm kind of coming at, coming at this from the sort of interested consumer's perspective, I guess. Uh, I'm not any kind of poll wizard or whatever the technical term is. We do have uh, our poll wizard uh, with us, Chris Terry. Um, thank you for coming on, uh, everyone. Um, so I just wanted to kick things off, Chris, uh, with asking about... I suppose a, a fairly big question to start with, but um, based on how the polls are looking at the moment, um, at this point in time, we're recording on November the 11th, 2019. Um, what can we learn from the current polling situation for the general election? And how does that relate to what politicians can learn from polling in general? Oh, there's a couple of things that kind of comes out clearly from the polls at the moment. Um First of all, the polls are, the academic term would be all over the place. Um, the, there's actually, uh, someone did a piece of a tweet recently which pointed out that there's a bigger standard deviation in polling leads right now than there's been in any previous general election. And that's a, there's probably 
there's large numbers of reasons for that. But what it means is that in, in terms of the leads that we're seeing in different polls, um, we're getting very different impressions of what's going on. That said, pretty much all the polls are showing kind of sizable conservative leads. Um, even some of the pollsters that weren't, um, we are um, seeing kind of a couple of different clusters, however, of those leads. Some pollsters are showing um, quite uh, smaller leads, um, typically ones that don't control for what we call false recall, which is where um, voters don't remember how they voted correctly at previous elections, and therefore we weight them wrong. And um, those who are showing larger leads, um, such as, for example, YouGov. Um, now, that seems that would be most likely tied to, in my view, um, leadership, um, because um, essentially one of the best predictors of elections in Britain is how people feel about political leaders. And one of the funny moments that we are right now, and probably one of the most important things about this particular moment, is that basically everyone thinks that every leader is rubbish. Um, with, But people, generally speaking, think that Jeremy Corbyn is... They, Jeremy Corbyn basically has the worst leadership ratings of anyone on record. Um, but Boris Johnson has better ratings but still pretty terrible ratings for a new Prime Minister. Um, new Prime Ministers are usually pretty popular, and Boris Johnson isn't. The final thing that we can see in the polling is that, um, is that essentially the country has bifurcated in terms of it's separated into two halves. Um, pe people who voted Remain and people who voted Leave have very different ideas of where the country is, where the country is going, and the political leaders within them. Remain voters typically think that the economy is doing badly, think it's going to continue doing badly, um, and have much worse views of Boris Johnson in particular. Um, whereas Leave voters are almost entirely the opposite in terms of those views. Um, so that's an incredibly important difference from previous elections where generally you've been able to speak of the electorate as having almost one mind. Now it's quite clear that there's these two sets of voters that um, have very different ideas about the, where we are and that is going to have quite important ramifications on how the election plays out. Um, for the purposes of jargon busting, um, Chris, would you quickly just be able to explain what standard deviation um, is, because you referred to it earlier on? So standard deviation is basically a way of measuring kind of the standard level of variation in the poll. So basically, if you have a big standard variation, that's a way of saying that there's a large amount of difference in terms of where they are. If you have a very narrow standard deviation, that would suggest that all the polls are suggesting a very similar thing. You're right, all the polls do kind of show a general trend towards a conservative uh, lead, but there is like massive variation in exactly how the parties are performing. So so some say that Labour's performing like the low 20s, in others it's like the, the high 20s and low 30s. And um, that has like significant ramifications for, for an electoral result. So 
Um, I thought that was really interesting that you said, and I wonder why um, why you think that is, and do you think it's related to um, the uh, to, to to that question of binary polarization, which you mentioned at the end about leave and remain, and also opening that up to 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 uh, you guys as well, Morgan and Lines, and um, to talk about that. And so I've seen a few reasons proposed for um, why the polls show the kinds of differences that they show. Um, some, most of them are to do with methodology. When we are building opinion polls, essentially what we're doing is we're building um, models of public opinion. The dream of any of any pollster is to be able to go out and just talk to people at random and to get a um, perfectly representative sample of the UK and through doing that be able to say you know it, therefore Labour is on 35% or however much. The reality is is that's not how things work. If we if you go out and talk to people at random, you'll get the uh, you'll you'll encounter numerous problems. Um, so we do things called we do do waiting to try and make it so that um, our samples are more more representative. So one of the things that we try to do is that we wait to how people voted at previous elections. Um, so. Um, and then one problem that, that comes up with that is what's called false recall. So what false recall is, is when um, people misremember how they voted at previous elections. So for example, a really good example of this is um, after the 2010 election, um, more people kept telling pollsters that they'd voted for the Liberal Democrats than had actually voted for the Liberal Democrats in the 2010 election. And they were really angry about the fact that they thought the Liberal Democrats had betrayed them. Um, but of course, you have to weight those people down um, because they're, they're unrepresentative and throwing off your samples. But that might also cause problems if they didn't, in fact, vote Liberal Democrat. Similarly, you might have problems with, for example, UKIP, or you know, people sometimes remember that they voted for the winner even when they didn't. Um, and so th those kind of problems happen. Now, pollsters like pollster like YouGov, which has really high quality data, which goes back to um, previous elections, can actually look at how, what people said they voted the week after the election and say, um, we know that you voted this way because that's what you said the week after, as opposed to what you're remembering two or three years on from the actual fact. Um, the, another problem is what we call is how you deal with the Brexit party. So different pollsters have been approaching the Brexit party in different ways. So there's a question of what we call prompting. So when you ask um, someone how they're going to vote, you'll typically say, how would you vote if the election is tomorrow um, out of, you know, Conservative, Labour, Liberal Democrats, um, or other and in some cases, pollsters are prompting for the Brexit party, so they're adding the Brexit party to that list. Or in other cases, they're not. And that's producing different um, results. Basically, those pollsters that prompt for the Brexit party are producing lower results for the Conservative Party. Um, the final 
problem is something that um, Martin Boone, who um, is a legendary pollster who now works at um, Delta Pole, but who previously worked at ICM for many years, um, keeps raising, is that um, pollsters are using different panels. Now these days, um, polls are mostly done online. And the thing about online polling is that you're reliant on what are called panels that are made up of um, basically people who um, sign up to them online and who um, who generally are doing them for uh, money. Um, so, for example, if you look at a YouGov poll, what you're essentially looking at is um, a sample of YouGov's own panel, which you can sign up to on their website. And if you do enough surveys, they'll eventually, after probably of quite a long time, send you a check for £50. Um, and that's basically the standard way that um, polls are now done in this country. Um, it's only really Ipsos Mori who are still using telephone polling. The fact is that we don't know a huge amount about the people on different panels, and there might be issues with them. For example, a common criticism of the YouGov panel has been to suggest that the YouGov panel, because it's so well known in political circles, is unusually politically interested and politically educated. Um, so the panel, uh, so YouGov now waits on the basis of political interest, um, but that itself in introduces problems. One question I would be interested in is to, I didn't realise until quite recently that a lot of um, uh, MPs are given a poll specifically um, on different issues and like they will be sent sent kind of uh, polling questionnaires by, by prominent polling companies to see what they can poll this kind of most important demographic, if I, don't know, I suppose you could call it, call it that. I'm curious to know what that what that gets used for and kind of how accurate that's considered to be. That is something that um, several polling companies do. Um, and uh, yes, there are there are problems with that data. For example, backbenchers are obviously more likely to respond because they're they're more time rich than frontbenchers. Um, and um, whether people from certain perspectives are more likely to respond and, and so on are, are questions within the industry. Um, generally speaking, I mean, anytime you're doing polling you're ultimately um, doing it in some way to make money, pollsters are businesses. Um, most public polling, in terms of opinion polls, is done because, um, essentially for reputation, um, because um, pollsters are market research companies at the end of the day, and so essentially um, most public opinion polling is done for the purposes of saying, um, look how accurate we got the last election, we're clearly the best pollster, um, therefore you, you basically want to use your, give us your market research money. Um, obviously with um, polling of MPs, you're aiming more at kind of lobbyists and people who basically want to get a sense of where MPs stand on an issue. Um, and therefore, um, how those MPs could be lobbied. So, and that's not necessarily always corporate lobbying. 
it can, for example, be um, NGOs and charities as well as, for example, you know, your shadowy uh, business lobbyists who, you know, we usually imagine when we think of lobbying. It might also be trade unions um, and other such organisations. Um, one other question I'm, I'm really curious to ask you about is we, we've been cut, you see a lot of things suggesting this is a Brexit election and a lot of election literature that you see is also kind of run on the idea that, you know, things, there are other things around the edges, but that primarily this is going to be a Brexit election. Um, but a lot of Labour Party policy recently has been, has been about kind of a push to a great universalism, lots of stuff about the National Education Service, um, 32 hour working week. Uh, so I'm curious to know if there's any way to poll kind of if there's any way to poll on like almost disparate issues, if 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 it's true that that things have become so riven between leave and remain voters, is there any kind of secondary layer of, layer of polling that that kind of takes in takes into account all of the rest? So when it comes to polling on issues, there's basically two elements. The first question is, you know, do people like policy X? And we know that, generally speaking, Labour Party policies are quite popular. And they were at the 2017 election. That's one of the reasons why um, Labour started gaining popularity during the um, contest was because their policies were much more popular than the Conservative ones. And they do speak to problems that people identify. We also know that uh, the other kind of um, element of issue polling is how important people consider an issue to be. Um, so for many years, immigration was considered to be one of the most important issues in the country, and parties responded to that um, in various ways. The Labour Party's um, controls on immigration's message under Ed Miliband was part of that. Now the number one issue in the country is um, Brexit. That is something that comes through in every pollster, is that regardless of remain or leave, people think that the number one issue in the country is Brexit, which, given that it interacts with basically every other policy area, kind of makes sense. It also makes sense because we also know that um, from the British election study, as well as from other um, major surveys, that people now identify with their remain or leave position more strongly than they do with their political party position. So, we, when I was talking earlier about the way in which the country has divided on this Remain or Leave line, um, the, it, that's something that comes across in terms of the ways that people identify too. Um, the, but, and that's a problem for the Labour Party because the, the Labour Party most Labour voters are Remain voters, um, but the Labour Party also has a lot of MPs in seats that voted Leave. Now, to some extent, the Labour Party gets this wrong because um, it imagines that um, because an MP represents a Leave seat, there's often a sense that that must mean that most Labour voters in those seats voted Leave. That's not true. That's um, been shown repeatedly that even in Leave seats, the vast majority of um, 
the vast majority of the Labour voters voted Remain. Um, but that doesn't mean that, for example, Labour Leave voters might not be crucial in terms of the contest, particularly if they go straight to the Conservative Party, because one of the things about First Past the Post is that essentially when you take a vote from the party that is in uh, first, when you're in second, it's worth two. Because you're essentially reducing their vote by one, and you're increasing your vote by one. Um, as opposed to when you take votes from, say, the Liberal Democrats or the Brexit Party. Um, it's all Part of how Labour's tried to handle this, to my mind, is to essentially try to minimise Brexit as an issue. And I can actually understand that logic, because essentially um, what the party is hoping for and betting is that the party's position on Brexit will be sufficient to get those Remain voters to vote for it. And then to try and um, win over Labour Leave voters through um, positions on austerity um, that I'll agree with. And we do actually have evidence that suggests that although all of what I've just said is true, that Labour Leave voters appear to actually be the um, category of voters in the country which are the least concerned about Brexit. And so they might actually be the most um, sensitive to that kind of messaging. So, so an interesting thing that I guess I don't see too much talked about is the fact uh, that, as we're very much seeing at the moment with the, the, the various uh, tactical voting websites which exist, some of whom perhaps might be people might put more faith in than others, depending on where you're coming from. The very existence of polling is kind of affecting how people vote. And actually, the flip side of that is that there's been this assumption, I think, in Labour activism for some time, that because we had the leap in 2017 until Labour and Tories were neck and neck, which led to the, the hung parliament we just had, something like that will happen again. And so the, the, there's been a lack of belief in the polls because of what's happened before. So I guess my question is, how do you deal with the fact that polls themselves are political actors which do things and people trust them or indeed say, oh, that says that, but I've said that actually means 10 more than that because this thing will happen. Like, a poll isn't an objective capture of reality. It's just it is one statistical sample which is doing a thing. And it feels like people have a, a variety of different relationships to them. And I was wondering what you thought about that. I mean, there's a... A, f a few things that I generally agree with there. I mean, first of all, polling is a snapshot. Um, and that's an incredibly important thing to say. You, the only thing that you can say about a poll when it comes out is that this is a snapshot of public opinion as it exists now. Um, and so... Uh, 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 and it's not a prediction. Um, and actually, one of the things I've tried to be... Um, more careful about in the last few years, I've, I've tried to be less deterministic about what polling says, because um, it's bec become increasingly clear that we have a very volatile electorate. There's actually a um, book coming out the day before the general election, which is basically about how we have the most volatile electorate we've ever had. Um, and in, in terms of what we mean by volatility, we essentially mean 
that they are the most changeable in terms of their ability to be swung. So we have these big conservative leads at the moment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in a couple of weeks they might ch that those leads are still going to be there. Um, it, it just means that we have a big conservative lead at the moment. And you're right that polls themselves can shape um, people's perspectives um, and, uh, and, and, you know, particularly in a first-past-the-post system, people are sensitive to what polls say because they're looking to maximise the utility of their votes. Um, now, some countries, um, for, exa uh, for example, Spain, who had an election this weekend, um, actually ban polling in the in a couple of weeks run up to the election. Um, I don't agree with that for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, as happens in Spain, um, the polling leaks. So essentially, what happens in Spain is that the um, pollsters leaks them through Andorran newspapers. And this is known in Spain as the fruit markets from Andoria. And they, uh, and so for example, I've, I saw polls in the run-up to the Spanish election, which were like, um, for example, um, roses are um, 27 euros, i.e. The, the Socialist Party is on 27% of the vote. Um, and that's a kind of, so these things have always gotten around. Second of all, if you do succeed in banning um, access to data publicly, then what you end up doing is um, is making it so that the only people who can access that data become those who are trying to make money uh, who are trying to make money out of it. And in particular, we've seen in recent years the rise of hedge funds commissioning large. Um, um, private polling in an attempt to get a sense of where things are and use that data in ways that perhaps are less than preferable. So, um, Chris, uh, your research and thesis, uh, despite it being early days, is going to be on uh, marginal seats. Uh, Morgan, you mentioned you work for unnamed Labour MP in unnamed marginal seats. Um, Morgan, what what has your experience been so far of of working working in the, in a kind of marginal seat? Well, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a bunch of really like try and uninteresting shit. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's more difficult to campaign in a marginal seat. Yeah, sorry, maybe Chris should talk, and then if I have any think of it, if no, say I will. But I I don't think I do. <laughs> okay, okay, Chris, you go then. One of the things about first faster post is that we know and everyone knows. Um, that um, more voting, more campaigning is concentrated on marginal seats because, by definition, those are the seats that can change hands. Um, and there's um, there's a kind of lots of different categories of marginal seats in some ways in in, in this particular election. Um, one, in particular, um, Labour Leave constituencies are being talked about as. Um, particular um, places w uh, which the Conservatives are concentrating on, people are talking about the Midlands and North, the whole whole Workington Man thing, which is frankly one of those um, things that um, like campaigns always like to do is like to give uh, the idea to the press of like we're targeting a particular kind of person, 
But really, whenever they do that, they're talking in very general terms. Oh, we're targeting um, working class men in the north who, you know, used to vote Labour, but who um, who voted Leave. Yeah, that's a lot of voters. <laughs> um, but the other category that's not been talked about is the kind of remain seats that could go. So, for example, particularly the the conservative Lib Dem battle in the southeast is, I think, going to be really interesting in terms of um, in terms of what conservative Remainers do. And now, conservative Remainers are basically now one of the least talked about demographics that might have uh, incredibly important ramifications for this election. My my sister is a conservative Remainer. She lives in um, she lives in Putney. Um, which is uh, now a freeway marginal. Um, she has, as I like to put it, legitimate economic concerns about the cost of her Ocado delivery. Um, and someone like her um, could well decide the, ele- the election in terms of how well the Lib Dems do um, and in terms of the overall structure of the parliament. And there's also... One of the difficulties, though, of the rise of the Lib Dems is it also means that we end up with seats that are increasingly freeway marginals. And one of the things that becomes difficult is then it becomes difficult to know how to cast your vote if you want to prevent someone from winning rather than to help someone win. So, for example, cities of London and Westminster, which is a conservative seat where... The Labour Party did well last time because it's very Remain. It's got some ethnic minority areas, and and but where the Lib Dems are this year, this year fielding Chukwuemana, um, because he believes he can do well there. And you know, if you're a voter on the ground, you're going to receive a large volume of literature from all three parties. That's going to send you mixed signals on who's going to succeed. You know, this is one of the reasons why the Lib Dems do their much maligned bar charts, because the problem that the Lib Dems always have is convincing people that they are capable of winning. So they do the whole thing of putting up billboards saying winning here, and they put out bar charts saying it's between us and the Tories or us and Labour, and so you have to vote for us. Um, And, you know, some of those tactics are controversial, and rightly so, but they are a reaction to the incentives that the electoral system creates. Um, and that's, that's why kind of interest, what will be interesting in this election will be tactical voting. That, that could come in two ways. People may just, in the end, move on block towards the Labour Party. That's kind of part of what happened in 2017. Um, Labour basically squeezed um, the Lib Dems and the Greens quite a lot um, as the election went on. Um, there's a still actually in polls quite a s- sizable number of people saying that they'll vote Green as well as Lib Dem, and I suspect they're probably more squeezable by by Labour in some ways. Which brings us to you know the whole controversy over tactical voting websites. I mean, there's basically two ways that you can approach tactic. Doing, building a tactical voting website. There's the whole thing of um, just looking at the result last time and then um, saying, well, 
Labour came second in my seat last time, therefore if I want to be the Conservatives, I, want, no, I need to vote Labour. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to decide how to tactically vote. Problem with that is that um, the Lib Dems have come up so much since the last election, there's going to be a lot of places where Labour came second last time, where the Lib Dems are now in second. And so um, that might not actually be the best choice. The other way that you can do things is that you can, for example, build some kind of statistical model of what where the Lib Dems are now and use that to judge kind of where they are. Now, the problem with that is, you know, all the problems that come with statistical models, um, they're snapshots, they, um, the people building the models might do them wrong. And that's, for example, what the best written people did. They did a um, what's called a multi-level regression post-stratification model, which is what um, famously got the election largely right in 2017 when YouGov did it. That's not to mean that we'll get it right this time, and this isn't being done by YouGov, so it, whether it's got the same level of technical finesse around it is hard to say. Um, MRP is extremely difficult to do, and so on. That said, the results of it do look to me to be broadly credible, um, but it was also based on data which was taken basically when the Lib Dems were at their strongest. Um, the data was collected between September and October, which would mean it would con cover conference season, which was when the Lib Dems were basically polling their best for quite some time. Um, so looking through the best of Britain recommendations, they strike me as perfectly credible based on the data that they had, but whether that data is still credible is an entirely different question. And, you know, as more MRP models come out during the election, um, as more tactical voting websites spring up during the election, I suspect people are going to get an increasingly different set of noises which make, might create confusion as the campaign wears on. You used to work for the Electoral Reform Society. Um, our voting system doesn't work very well. Clearly, there are a number of arguments about what it should be instead. I was wondering what your personal feelings are, and if you see it actually being possible, we'd get there. Because obviously, under first past the post, anyone who wins under first past the post is kind of incentivised to keep the voting system the same. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Um, being ex of the Electoral Reform Society, it's fair to say that I support proportional representation. Um, it's kind of one of those things that's expected when you're being paid by the Electoral Reform Society. Um, but um, generally speaking, I, I think that the electoral system will probably have to change in the long run because essentially what's happened to British politics um, over the last 60 years has been an increasing fragmentation. So, back in the 50s and early 60s, you could basically boil down how someone was going to vote to their social class. It wasn't a perfect relationship, but generally speaking, if you were working class, you voted 
Labour, and if you were middle class or upper class, you voted Conservative. And that was basically, you know, it was described as that was basically all of British politics and anything else was embellishment. And then as time wore on, um, we began to see um, class becoming less of an important identity than it was. The nature of class changed. Um, and that's not to say that class isn't still important. Um, it's incredibly important. And in fact, you know, pollsters still try to balance their models on the basis of class because it still is. Um, but it's perhaps not as important as once it was. And other identities have risen up which are, um, are also important. So, um, for example, um, you know, we've had higher immigration. So, for example, ethnicity has become quite important. Um, national um, views have become more important in, um, and national identity has become more important in Wales and Scotland. And so we've seen, we've seen the rise of nationalist parties. Um, Northern Ireland has basically completely divorced its um, party system away from the UK altogether. You, if you're in Northern Ireland now, you basically can't vote for any of the UK parties. And also we've seen the rise of um, the politics of values, um, which is a kind of term for um, something that kind of arose in the 1960s. Um, so in the 1960s, you um, saw the rise of what was called the New Left, so, which um, didn't just abandon, uh, which didn't just care about economic issues, but also began to care about, for example, civil rights, um, the environment, feminism, uh, multiculturalism, um, those kinds of issues. And seeing, you know, voting left from a kind of moral standpoint rather than a purely economic uh, one, particularly kind of associated with um, kind of young graduates. Um, and then we saw a kind of, um, then we saw a kind of counter wave against that, which is sometimes what we associate with kind of right wing populism. Um, and essentially, that kind of process has been of the politics of values becoming more important has been something that we've seen across Europe. And what's particularly happened in Britain is that it's been. It's been ha happening under the surface for years and years and years. And then the Brexit referendum came along and essentially Vote Leave basically took that divide and and basically went and basically just completely catalyzed it. Um, because essentially they were making an argument to leave the EU in those kinds of um, socially conservative terms. And so... Uh, and then the counter-reaction comes um, on a kind of cosmopolitan kind of remain wavelength. So what we now have is kind of numerous divides in a country. People talk about um, like open versus closed replacing left and right. I don't really agree with that. I think that's a simplification of where we are. A world in which left and right doesn't matter anymore is a world in which, for example, Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't exist, or you know David Cameron wouldn't exist. Obviously, those people aren't going to be in the same political party, having both voted Remain. That's nonsense. But 
that's not to say that other divides aren't increasingly important. And the more that those divides, the more divides that we have, the more complex it becomes to hold a kind of two-party system together. Um, and the more complex it becomes for political parties to build complex coalitions within such a system. Um, and so what we're seeing now is uh, th those divides coming out increasingly. And, and essentially what you can do is you can look at what's happened since 2016 at every election and basically understand it as remain and leave to some extent trying to find a kind of popular expression. So for example in 2017 really in the end what did it for Labour is that Remain voters swung behind them very strongly and uh, and that's what basically got Labour to 40% of the vote and uh, and it was a kind of reaction. It was a reaction to the fact that the Conservative Party was campaigning as the party of Leave, which is what the Conservative Party is doing now. The European elections are kind of an interesting case in point because that's essentially because the victory of the Brexit party with the Lib Dems coming second is kind of this is what happens when um, you have a single issue election which is an important part of it which is entirely about Europe and you tell the general public that you that they're voting under proportional representation so they vote um, so they don't have to think about voting tactically essentially very large portions not everyone, but very large portions of the country kind of go to the fringes of the kind of remain leave spectrum. Um, and so essentially what I think we're seeing is people basically trying to adjust to an electoral system which is kind of suited towards two-party politics um, when they are themselves divided in multiple ways. Uh, and uh, particularly this remain leave divide but others as well and in terms of that I think it can probably only lead to more hung parliaments and hung parliaments that probably will be quite hard to govern in because um, for example one of the things of first past the post is it makes it easier for regional parties to win seats so for example like the SNP the SNP can win the SNP in 2015 won half the votes in Scotland but won 95% of the seats because the electoral system doesn't just flatter national parties that, that um, do best, they also flatter regional parties that do best. Um, so you kind of have prickly regionalist coalition partners like the SNP and DUP. If you do have a um, coalition partner that isn't like that, like the Lib Dems, they're going to be quite prickly about entering coalition, I think, because um, it's typically the case that junior coalition partners um, get um, screwed, as it were. Um, and so, um, and if you half your vote in the Netherlands, as for example happened to, um, to Democrat 66, which is essentially their version of the Lib Dems, then you lose half your seats which is a crisis, but it's one that you can recover from. If you more than half your votes in a British election, as happened to the Lib Dems in 2015, you go from 57 seats to 8. <laughs> and 
you know, your party is almost wiped off the map. Uh, and so that's going to make it more difficult to govern. Um, what we're also seeing is increasing um, polarisation within within regions of the country as well, which is making that hung parliament zone that much bigger. So right now, a uniform swing, there's about a seven points where you would get a hung parliament. That increases as it becomes more multi-party and there's more MPs from um, parties other than the main two get elected. Um, so I think that... Uh, increasing division will probably promote in the long run the idea of changing the electoral system. Um, I would personally, if given the choice, I would say that actually since 1997 this country has actually become something of an electoral system laboratory. If you live in Scotland now, you, live, you can vote in four different electoral systems um, across the course of a normal five-year parliamentary term. First past the post, closed list PR for the European elections, um, single transferable vote for the um, local elections, and you can vote for in the, using the additional member system for the Scottish Parliament. And I would actually say that the best system out of those is the additional member system, which gives people something that they're used to, i.e., they, ha they elect a first-past-the-post MP, um, who is a constituency representative, and then they elect MPs in proportion to their vote on the list. There's, there's one thing that people really don't... I'm about to make my, my absolutely cat-handed defence of first-past-the-post. Um, so I'm, I'm actually I'm from Ireland, where we have a, a form of proportional representation. I think people just don't take into account the fact that it's really fucking boring. Like. Uh, an election night is really exciting. Like you, you it's. I, I know it's like elections aren't Eurovision, and these are very serious matters at hand. But it's just so dull when it's like three days later, and it's kind of Sunday afternoon. You've kind of forgot you voted in the first place, and Ender Kenny has become T Shock again, and you're like, oh great, Ender Kenny again. Um, it's just I don't know if that's my. That's always my uh, strong defense of strong defense of first past the post. At least it's kind of. I don't know, if there is such a thing as a sexy electoral system, it's a sexy electoral system, but also deeply flawed. Uh, also a side question, I I um, was looking at this, was looking at this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, targeted voting website, and it just told me to vote for, it just told me to vote for Mike Gates, I don't know if that's... <laughs> is, is that the one that recommends Mark Gates, Mike Gates in every constituency? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to vote for Mike Gates, Jesus I think Christ. I'm... Uh, I feel like if your tactical voting uh, site is recommending voting for Mike Gapes, there's probably something wrong with it. <laughs> if Mike Gapes is the answer, the question is something wrong. <laughs> what a cursed end to that conversation. Um, but thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to Morgan and Lines for coming back onto the podcast. And thank you to Chris uh, for joining us for the first time and explaining what the hell polling is. Um, I certainly learned a lot over the course of this recording. I know I hope you did as well. 
If you enjoyed listening to the episode, then please do like and subscribe, rate us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast, wherever you happen to listen to this, um, share it online, tell your friends, get in touch with us, all that sort of thing. Uh, check out the Social Review website for more content like this, but in in textual form. Um, and yeah, uh, we'll have another episode for you next week where I'm sure we'll have plenty of fun election-related things to discuss. So thanks very much for listening once again. Have a good week and goodbye. I'm mostly on this podcast this evening in part to make up gender balance, uh, but mostly to to try and work out the likelihood, according to an expert, of losing my job in the middle of the night at a sports centre on the 12th of December. So please help. <laughs>